Paul's first Corinthian letter was written to deal with divisions in the Corinthian church. He's received a letter from the Corinthians asking about how to deal with Greco-Roman pagans around them, as well as how to handle professing Christians who did not either understand or who failed to implement the apostles' instructions. In Ephesus, where Paul was then residing, someone who had just come from Corinth passed on to Paul the news the Corinthians had completely misunderstood his written response to their letter. On top of that, Paul received a delegation from the Corinthian church asking a whole series of questions which Paul must address. The news coming from Corinth was disturbing. Paul's response to this serious situation is the letter we now know as 1 Corinthians. When you begin to summarize the content of 1 Corinthians in order to answer the what is in the letter question, you notice something rather remarkable for a situational letter like this one, a letter specifically written to address divisions beginning to appear within the Corinthian congregation. Paul's response is not to scold them, although there is a fair bit of strong exhortation, but rather to teach them the correct doctrine, which is then to be applied to each of the difficult situations brought to his attention. That makes for a rich theological letter in terms of doctrinal content worked out with a great deal of practical application. Paul's thesis statement is set out in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. The two primary sources of contention which Paul must address are those typical of Greco-Roman paganism, sexual immorality and idolatry, along with the Corinthian tendency to boast about their personal accomplishments. Paul must remind these new Christians of what he'd taught them when he'd been with them previously. God's grace revealed in Christ's death and resurrection and the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit brings about an entirely different set of ethics and morality to those in Christ's church. Love for fellow members of the family of God is to characterize the Corinthian church, not petty division. The divisions in Corinth must cease since the church is the body of Christ, Paul's apostolic authority to address such matters was given to him by Christ himself, so it is to be accepted, and Christ's church should reflect the new creation which Jesus has brought about through his cross and his resurrection. If you take a look at any of the best-known Reformed systematic theologies, say that of Louis Burkhoff, or Christian Dogmatics from Herman Bovink, or the Institutes of Olympic Theology from Francis Turretin, you'll find that the number of biblical texts cited by these writers in support of major doctrines is about the same for 1 Corinthians as it is for Romans and Ephesians, two of the more systematic of Paul's letters. The reason? Well, Paul's Corinthian letter is packed with Trinitarian references. He speaks of calling and election as the manifestation of God's grace as revealed in the gospel. He discusses Christ's resurrection and ours, in great detail, the most significant discussion of the resurrection of the body in all the New Testament. Paul addresses numerous aspects of the Christian life, much of which is centered upon the love of neighbor, 
working itself out in a number of the situations reported to him as the chief signs that one is truly converted and which serves as the basis of Christian ethics and morality. It is fair to say, then, that 1 Corinthians is theology applied to life. What is Paul's theology? How does he apply it to the Corinthians? And what does that mean for us? But we'll discuss this and more in this episode of the Blessed Hope Podcast. I'm Kim Riddlebarger, and this is Episode 2 of Season 3, entitled God is Faithful, which is taken from 1 Corinthians 1, verse 9. And this series is a deep dive into 1 Corinthians. We'll spend the next hour or more in discussing the contents and theology of 1 Corinthians. So join us for what I think you will find to be a feast of rich doctrinal content skillfully applied by Paul to the issues plaguing the Corinthian church. Paul's reply to the troubles in Corinth also brings divine wisdom to us as we struggle to deal with many of the same ills in the church today. So as we answer the what is in it question, what's in 1 Corinthians, we come to the main theological theme set forth in 1 Corinthians. Now, I'm following by and large the outline given by Tom Schreiner in his commentary in 1 Corinthians, which is why I recommend it as one of the basic commentaries in my recommended reading list, but I'm going to adapt it considerably, but I do think we should give him credit for the, the skeletal structure anyway is from him. Now, as I noted in my exposition of Paul's Thessalonian letters, I think it a good way to approach Paul's letters by asserting that they are consistent in their theology. That same theology is applied in a number of widely different circumstances, as we see here in Paul's Corinthian correspondence. This model was suggested by Christian Becker, who identifies what he describes as a coherence contingency pattern in Paul's letters. His point is we ought not to think of Paul as a systematic theologian, or on the other hand, a theological innovator, or a pragmatist who makes up his doctrine on the fly in response to situations or crises facing local congregations. Instead, we should understand Paul through his apostolic office, applying his core belief of an unchanging gospel revealed to him by the risen Lord and grounded in the saving merits of Jesus to specific yet very dynamic situations facing these new congregations from the Gentile mission. A coherence contingency model, which might be described as theology applied to life, nicely characterizes Paul's two Corinthian letters. So, what did Paul teach the Corinthians during his time with them? We can summarize Paul's theology, which is applied in his Corinthian correspondence as follows. So first, let's take a look at Paul's Trinitarian theology. Then we'll talk about his doctrine of salvation and the resurrection. Then we'll take up the work of the Holy Spirit and his gifts. And then finally, we'll talk about the Christian life. So four big sections. First, Paul's Trinitarian theology. Paul's first Corinthian letter reveals a very robust Trinitarian theology, as the sheer number of references to the members of the Trinity indicate. 
According to Brian Rosner, I'm quoting, Paul's letters rank alongside the Gospel of John as containing the richest vein of Trinitarian theology in the New Testament. End of quote. And two of the texts Rosner deems most important for Paul in this regard are found in Paul's Corinthian correspondence. Take, for example, 1 Corinthians 12, 4-6. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And then in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Paul identifies Yahweh as the Father in 1 Corinthians 1, 3, 8, 6, and 15, 24. Paul appeals to the famous Shema from Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. When he confesses that there is one God, the Father, who is creator of all things, as he puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 to 6. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and the one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Throughout 1 Corinthians, Paul repeatedly affirms that God is sovereign over all things. We see this when the Apostle speaks of God's kingdom, or his rule over all of creation, on five occasions in this letter alone. 1 Corinthians 4.20, 6.9, and 10, 15, 24, and 50. But God's mighty power is most obvious in the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 15. God's sovereignty extends to all the events transpiring in Corinth, and a brief catalog of texts like this reveals that Paul became an apostle by God's will and subsequent call. He mentions that in the opening of the letter and again in chapter 3, verse 10. He goes on to say, Our salvation is the result of God's power and grace. 1 Corinthians 1.18 That God frustrates and brings to nothing the wisdom of the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 20-21 And the extent of God's sovereignty is evident in the suffering experienced by the apostles. That is not outside of God's control. In fact, God has appointed them to suffer according to 1 Corinthians 4, verse 9. So for Paul, God rules over all of life. He says as much in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 12, so that whatever one's calling and vocation, that is a result of God's will. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7. As we've seen in his overtly Trinitarian theology that was set out in both Galatians and in his Thessalonian letters, in his Corinthian correspondence, Jesus Christ's status is equal to that of the Father, which is a very important and remarkable point given the monotheism of the Old Testament in which Paul had been raised. Paul speaks of Jesus as the Christ, a messianic title, 55 times in 1 Corinthians, and that's a truly remarkable thing. As noted, one of the most significant statements Paul makes about Jesus in all of his letters is found in 1 Corinthians 8.6, which we just quoted, and which is grounded in the Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4, the confession of faith of every Israelite. 
Now, the unique status of Jesus is also communicated by his authority, which is evident in his lordship. We see Jesus' lordship expressed in the confessional statement, which we've mentioned, this is the third time, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, where he's designated the one Lord. And when Paul does so, he's drawing on the Old Testament, where Yahweh is designated in the Septuagint as Kyrios, or Lord. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Paul speaks of the Lordship of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 12.3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Indeed, all those who are led by the Spirit of God will confess that Jesus is Lord. But this Lordship is only seen through the eyes of faith so that the rulers of this age crucified the Lord of glory because they didn't have the eyes of faith. Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8. We also see the authority of Jesus in that ministers are his servants, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1, and our bodies are said to belong to the Lord. That's why sexual sin is forbidden in chapter 6, verse 13. Since Jesus is Lord... And pleasing him and being devoted to him should mark the lives of all Christians, as Paul tells us in chapter 7, verses 32 through 35. The Lord Jesus exercises his sovereignty over the lives of believers by assigning to them, and now to us, particular ministries, chapter 3, verse 5, and also by designating their particular calling in life, 1 Corinthians 7, 7, and by assigning various gifts of the Spirit, and we'll spend more time on that point later. As Lord, Jesus gives directions, and he issues commands which we as believers must obey. 1 Corinthians 7.10 and 25 and chapter 9 verse 14. Paul recognizes the Lord's sovereignty in acknowledging that he will be able to visit the Corinthians only if the Lord permits it. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 7. Paul states that Christ was the rock, chapter 10, verse 4, and that draws upon a lot of Old Testament imagery in which God is said to be the rock. And there's some significant passages. I'll give you just a couple. There's a long list. Genesis 49, 24, Deuteronomy 32. There are a bunch of references there. 2 Samuel 22, 32, and throughout the Psalms, 18, 46, and again in Isaiah chapter 17, verse 10. So, Paul does something quite similar to that in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 9, when he notes that Israel in the wilderness tested Christ and was destroyed by serpents. Yet in Numbers 21, the story Paul draws upon, there is no prophetic reference to Jesus Christ in the story. Numbers 21 describes Israel's impatience with Yahweh, verses 4 through 9 of that chapter. Yet the Lord, the Kyrios of the Old Testament, is now understood by Paul to refer to Jesus Christ. And although Jesus presently rules and reigns as the exalted Lord, Paul speaks of God as Christ's head, 1 Corinthians 11.3 and chapter 3, verse 23. As the man from heaven, as Paul speaks of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15.47-48, Jesus will submit to the Father at the conclusion of history and hand his kingdom over to him. From his statements in 1 Corinthians 11.3, the head of Christ is God, and 15.28, the Son will be subjected to the Father, 
We need to be clear that Paul is not claiming that the Father has an intrinsic authority, ad intra, that is, in the internal workings of the Trinity, that the Son lacks. Rather, the submission of the Son to the Father has to do with the personal relations within the economic Trinity, each person of the Trinity acting according to his own personal properties. The Father creates, the Son is eternally generated, and the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, we should be very clear here that the economic trinity is not separate from the imminent trinity, and that the Son's submission is not eternal, as some now claim. In no way does this point to an essential inferiority of the Son to the Father, because for Paul, the Father and the Son possess the same essence as God ad intra, that is, in the inner workings of the trinity, the ontological nature of God, but they have different functions in that the Father carries out his work through the Son and in the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4-6, to when discussing spiritual gifts, Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus, and God the Father, sharing the same essence and authority. Now Christians everywhere are to call upon the name of our Lord Jesus, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, which is an expression that echoes the Old Testament use of God's name as incomparable. We see this in Exodus 3, 13-15, the burning bush. His name is not to be misused, third commandment, Exodus 20, verse 7, and which represents his holiness, Exodus 33, 19, and 34, 5. This name is reserved for him alone, we read in Exodus 34, and therefore must be honored. Leviticus 18.21. Paul's reference to the significance of the name is seen throughout 1 Corinthians, since calling on Jesus' name means that he is called upon for salvation from the guilt of sin, while in the Old Testament people called on the name of the Lord to be delivered from danger and from wrath. Genesis 4.26, 1 Kings 18.24, and the list goes on, Psalm 79.6, and Jeremiah 10, verse 25, and there are others. That Jesus shares in this divine name indicates his divine identity. And Jesus has the same stature of God and is to be called upon by Christians, just as Israel called upon Yahweh in the Old Testament. This is an important point that's often overlooked. Paul's Christology serves as the foundation for his ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. This is a matter of great importance, which we'll find throughout the letter. The church is Jesus' body, 1 Corinthians 12, 27, since he gathers believers in his name, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 4. Jesus is spoken of as the foundation of the church, 1 Corinthians 3, 10. Baptism, sanctification, and justification are said to be in his name, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, where we read, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Whenever the church gathers, Jesus is present with us, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 4. It is Jesus who gives believers the spirit of life, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 45. And as for the sacraments, baptism, which is the initiatory rite into the church, as well as the ratification of God's covenant promise, baptism is to be done in Jesus' name. 1 Corinthians 1, 13, and 15. As far as the Lord's Supper, which celebrates the death of Jesus for the sake of his people, he gives us spiritual nourishment, 
in his name and strengthens our faith. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 26. And then when discussing the role of the Holy Spirit, we begin by pointing out that the Spirit is given to the church by the resurrected and exalted Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.45 In his commentary on 1 Corinthians, Paul identifies three themes that are relative to the Spirit and which are developed in this 1 Corinthians letter. The first being the Spirit is a spirit of revelation. The second, the Spirit gives spiritual gifts. And third, the church is characterized as a possession of the Spirit. Now, according to 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 to 16, we read that the Spirit is said to be a spirit of revelation. And although many among the Corinthians were enthralled with pagan wisdom, which we'll read about in the last part of chapter 1 into chapter 2, such wisdom was nothing more than mere human wisdom, which Paul sees as a manifestation of sinful human pride. And again, drawing deeply upon the Old Testament, Paul reminds the Corinthians that true wisdom is a gift of God. And then the echoes here are from Job 28 and Proverbs 2.6 and Daniel 2.20-21. And this wisdom is granted to believers by the Holy Spirit. Such wisdom is not discovered. It can't be discovered. But it's revealed by God, the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 10, we read this. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And while such knowledge is possible, only for God himself, archetypally, as the theologians like to speak, Paul distinguishes between the Spirit and the Father, because there is only one God. The Spirit is distinct from the Father, and as God, he participates in all divine activities. Now, Christians ought not boast about wisdom and knowledge, since it's only through the Holy Spirit that they can truly know the things of God. 1 Corinthians 2.12 Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Christians receive the Spirit as the sign that one has been truly converted. Paul says that much in Galatians 3.2 and 5. All believers in Jesus are said to be indwelt by the Spirit, while non-Christians are not so indwelt, according to Romans 8, verse 9. Those without the Spirit do not accept God's revelation, and they inevitably reject what the Spirit reveals. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14 says this, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to them, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Paul tells the Corinthians that unlike the pagans who teach mere human wisdom, he proclaims true wisdom from God, which is revealed by the Holy Spirit to those who are indwelt by the Spirit, verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 2. In his office as the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul speaks authoritatively by the Spirit to the Corinthians, declaring that he has the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 40. Some among Paul's opponents may claim to be prophets or spiritual, the pneumatikos, but Paul reminds them that his words, unlike theirs, are the Lord's commands. 1 Corinthians 14.37 If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things I am writing to you are a command from the Lord. Paul is one who is directed and guided by the Holy Spirit, in preaching the gospel and offering correction, he has communicated that given to him through divine revelation 
by the Holy Spirit. Second, spiritual gifts were a major source of contention in Corinth, and apparently the Corinthians were proud of and divided over particular gifts which they exercised. We'll read all about that in chapters 12, 13, and 14. Paul emphasizes that the gifts are spiritual, they're mnemonicos, 1 Corinthians 12, 1, 14, 1, and 14. And they're spiritual because they're given by the Holy Spirit. These gifts are not a manifestation of one's skills, education, or ability that is human wisdom, but they come from the Spirit, 12, verse 7. In fact, no one can confess that Jesus is Lord apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, chapter 12, verse 3. People cannot boast or be self-congratulatory because they don't possess these gifts in themselves, because the natural man, the sinful person, does not receive the things of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. The Spirit ensures that in Christ's body, which is the church, there is a diversity of spiritual gifts for the better of all, not for the glorification of one. All Christians receive at least one spiritual gift, but no Christian receives all of them. These gifts, which the Spirit assigns as He wills, 1 Corinthians 12.11, include wisdom and knowledge, faith and healing, chapter 12, verses 8 to 9. The third point Schreiner makes is that Christians are characterized by the indwelling of the Spirit, chapter 2.10 through chapter 3, verse 1. Believers are said to drink of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12.13. To be a Christian is to be a person of the Spirit. Hence, believers should glorify God with their bodies because their bodies are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Chapter 6, verses 19 to 20. The indwelling Spirit is not only an individual reality, but the Spirit indwells the church corporately as well. Chapter 3, verse 16. Knitting diverse individuals into one body, which is Christ's body and the church. The Lord no longer dwells in a building the tabernacle, the Jerusalem temple, and so on, as in the Old Covenant era, the Spirit now indwells the church of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. Well, that brings us to the second main point of Paul's doctrine. We can summarize his views regarding salvation and the resurrection. So, as evident in the book of Acts, Paul's preaching to the Jews emphasized that Jesus is the Christ. Acts 18, verse 5. The Apostles' instruction to the Corinthians apparently was largely accepted by them since there appears to be no controversy in Corinth about the gospel, as there had been in Galatians. Paul need not elaborate further on the truth that Jesus was the Messiah, but his use of the term some fifty-plus times demonstrates that this theme is central to his preaching and teaching. Christ is an honorific title like Augustus in Caesar Augustus, or Epiphanes in Antiochus Epiphanes and reveals that Jesus the Christ is Israel's Messiah. And so, Christ is not a proper name, but it's a title. It's apparent that the person work of Jesus the Christ is the foundation of Paul's gospel. God's graces communicate to his people the elect through the person work of Christ as proclaimed in the gospel. Paul is very clear about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, and then again at the end of the letter in chapter 16, verse 23. When articulating the gospel, as in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 3, Paul focuses upon Christ dying for our sins, a clear indication that our race has fallen in Adam, 
separated from God by the guilt of our sin. And Jesus shows his love for sinners by giving his life for them and for us since he was crucified on their and our behalf. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 13. Through the gospel of Christ crucified, God's saving power and wisdom are revealed whenever his cross is proclaimed, a point that Paul makes in chapter 1 verses 18 through 25. The proclamation of Jesus as the crucified Lord, who delivers his people from death and sin, is the gospel. And that's the reason why Paul is so resolute to preach only the cross of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 2 and not mere human wisdom designed to impress and entertain believers. Being a Christian is defined in terms of the cross of Christ, since Paul now describes believers as those for whom Christ died, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 11. Paul speaks of Christians as being bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6.20 and 7.23. The Corinthians had been enslaved to sin and unable to rescue themselves from its bondage. Through the shedding of his blood, Jesus has freed us from the sin that formerly enslaved us. And so Paul reminds his readers and his hearers that Jesus was sacrificed as our Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7. Again, you can see throughout these writings to Gentiles, Paul's thought world is still the Old Testament. And so as he reinterprets the Old Testament through the lens of Christ, the first Passover sacrifice which freed Israel from Egypt was a substitutionary sacrifice. It was for us and in our place. The blood on the Hebrew doorpost turned aside the wrath of God so that the firstborn children were spared from death. And so too it is with the death of Jesus, which we, in the Corinthians, embrace by faith. Paul has Christ's death in mind when he says the believers were washed and sanctified and justified in his name, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11. Washing here signifies the cleansing of sins in baptism, but by no means should be interpreted ex per operato, that is, by virtue of the work performed. What that means is that Paul makes very clear in 1 Corinthians 1, 13-17, that baptism must be seen in light of the gospel and doesn't convey some sort of automatic blessing. We see this in 1 Corinthians 10, too, where Paul says of Israel, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, because baptism comes in a covenantal context wherein faith in the promise is foundational. In justification, believers are declared to be right in the sight of God based upon the reception of Christ's merits through faith. Such justification is based upon the atoning death of Jesus in which he took upon himself the punishment that we sinners deserve. Very clear in Romans 3, 21-26, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Galatians 3, 10 through 13, as well as through the imputation of Christ's righteousness to the believer, Romans 5, 18 to 19, and especially clear in Philippians 3, verse 8. All of the saving works of Jesus Christ are received by faith alone. Now, believers are said to be sanctified by Christ's death, not in the sense of progressive sanctification, wherein we become progressively holier if we persevere but rather in regard to what we call definitive sanctification. Believers are declared to be holy before God by virtue of their justification, then consecrated or set apart unto God by virtue of Christ's death. G.K. Beale very nicely puts it this way, quoting, 
Definitive sanctification is a definitive and irreversible separation of the believer from the old world. The point is that once the old man has been stripped off, the sins that characterize the old man also begin to be laid aside. End of quote. Through Christ's obedience and his cross, Christians are said to be in Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.30, incorporated into him, and thereby participate and share in all the riches of his grace through union with him. The verb to justify, dikaio, should be interpreted forensically, and here there are a number of Old Testament passages, along with a substantial number of New Testament texts to reveal this right standing is given to us through the imputation of Christ's righteousness, it grants unto us a legal status of right before God. Those who belong to Christ have been declared to be in the right before God on the basis of his death and resurrection. Those who receive Christ's saving power are said to be sanctified and holy, 1 Corinthians 1.2 and 6.11. Not because of our intrinsic holiness, but by virtue of the cross and resurrection of Jesus, which grants forgiveness of sin and the gift of a justifying righteousness, Romans 4.25 comes to mind, and again, which is received through faith alone. In the Lord's Supper, believers participate in the benefits of Christ, his shed blood and broken body, on their behalf. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. God strengthens faith and sustains believers through Christ's body and blood, which is given for them. When Paul says that Christ's body symbolized in the breaking of bread for you, 1 Corinthians 11.24, we have an additional reference to substitution which Christ is said to die in the place of sinners. Christ gave up his body and poured out his blood so that believers might live. And this new covenant was instituted, Jesus tells us, in his blood, 1 Corinthians 11.25, and one of the remarkable features of the New Covenant is the present and permanent forgiveness of sins, promised in Jeremiah 31, verse 34. Through the Lord's Supper, through the celebration of the sacrament, believers proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-six. And because of the work of Christ, Christians are united with the Lord and thus one with him in spirit, 1 Corinthians six seventeen. Paul not only proclaims the cross of Christ, he also heralds the resurrection of the body, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4. Throughout chapter 15, Paul concentrates on the resurrection, since this apparently was a matter of some dispute in Corinth, and we'll talk more about this later on. The reality and truth of the resurrection is verified by the many post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Paul appeals to them in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5 to 8. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is the fundamental fact of Christianity. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, then the faith of believers is futile, 1 Corinthians 15:14. We are still in our sins, verse 17, and we perish, verse 18. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees the resurrection of believers since his resurrection is described as the first fruits of what is sure to come the general resurrection at the end of the age. And we'll spend some time on this when we get to that passage in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, and 23. As the source of grace and peace, God grants salvation and life to human beings. 1 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4, 15, 10. 
and effectively has called the Corinthians to faith in Jesus Christ, as mentioned in chapter 1, 24-28. Salvation is not ultimately due to human free will or human decision, but is granted by virtue of the electing grace of God, 1 Corinthians 1, 27-28. It's by God's choice that individuals come to faith in Christ, 1 Corinthians 1, 30, and they do so through the message of the cross, which is a stumbling walk to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. The cross, an instrument of shame and torture, exposes the wisdom of human beings for what it is, the product of a darkened understanding, according to Paul later on in Ephesians 4, 17-18. And the cross exalts the wisdom of God in Christ, chapter 1, verses 18-25. through God chooses to reveal the truth about himself through the Holy Spirit so that knowledge about God cannot be ascribed to the human intellect or to any human achievement. 1 Corinthians 2, 6-16 What especially stands out in 1 Corinthians is Paul's stress upon the power and efficacy of God's saving grace. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 4 Believers are called to faith by the grace of God. The word called used in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, 24, and 26, does not signify an invitation to believe, but rather it's a command to believe. For Paul, such calling is effectual and inevitably persuades the elect to believe. Calling is, of course, to be distinguished from preaching. Keruso, as we find in 1 Corinthians 1, 23. Paul preaches to all Jews and Gentiles alike, the free offer of the gospel, it's called. The gospel is preached to everyone. But the message of the cross is revealed as the wisdom and power of God only to the elect who are called through the preaching of the gospel to faith in Jesus. Paul makes this point crystal clear in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul defines calling further in 1 Corinthians 1, 27-28 when he explains that calling manifests itself in God's choice or his election of the foolish and the weak and the unremarkable of this world. In this we see yet another indication that God's call is effective. The proclamation of Christ crucified is not naturally received, 1 Corinthians 2.14, since it is a scandal and an offense but it is accepted only by those who are recipients of God's effectual call, which is the work of the Spirit. And therefore all praise and all honor belong to God in the salvation of sinners, a point which Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 1, 29-31. Paul also says that believers are known. 1 Corinthians 1, 8, 3, and you can parallel this with Romans 8, 28-30, the famous golden chain of salvation passage. God's knowledge does not merely entail his foresight of contingent events, but represents his covenant favor which he grants to his elect. 1 Corinthians 4.9, Romans 8.29, Romans 11.2, and 1 Peter 1 verse 2. Here we find another loud echo from the Old Testament in that God's covenant love or knowledge is given to Abraham, Genesis 18.19, Israel, Amos 3.2, and Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1 verse 5. Now it's said to be given to all those for whom Christ died. Paul is also clear about the perseverance of believers in the faith. 
God does not unknow those whom he has known. God's grace secures final salvation. God is faithful, and he will keep and protect to the end those who are effectually called as saints, a point made in 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, 10, 13, and as we've seen a couple of times in the Thessalonian letters, 1 Thessalonians 5, 24, and 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 3. Now, as mentioned, one of the major themes raised by Paul in 1 Corinthians is the resurrection of Jesus and its implication for the resurrection of believers. Chapter 15 indicates that the matter arose because some of the Corinthians doubted the physical resurrection of believers, presumably because they were influenced by Greco-Roman culture, which does not have a category for the physical resurrection of the body. For Greeks and Romans, in death, the soul is liberated from the body, it's freed from all physical limits. Paul makes his case in chapter 15 by emphasizing the truth of Christ's bodily resurrection from the dead. He appeals to the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus to specific people after his death to verify that he was physically raised, 1 Corinthians 15, 4-8, and that the tomb in which he had been buried was empty. The argument that these appearances were merely hallucinations is refuted by the fact that Jesus was seen by over 500 people at one time, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6. And it's highly unlikely that 500 individuals would experience the same hallucination at the same time. Dare I say, it is impossible. Paul emphasizes that so many of those who saw the resurrected Christ were still alive, which implies that their witness to the resurrection is not merely a matter of historical record, but that it could be attested by their living testimony. I think you get the impression here that Paul is saying, if you don't believe me, go ask them. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 19, Paul discusses the relationship between the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of believers. Four times in this section, he mentions that there's an indissoluble relationship between the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of Christians. In fact, if one denies the physical resurrection of believers, it also follows that one does not truly believe in the resurrection of Jesus, a point Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 14. Since all believers are in Christ rather than in Adam, the great two Adams theology of Paul here in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22, what is true of Christ is true of all believers. Just as all die in Adam, so too all those in Christ will be granted resurrection life in him. The consequences that follow if Christ was not raised from the dead are also spelled out. Apostolic preaching is futile and false, 1 Corinthians 15, 14-15. The faith of the Corinthians is useless, 1 Corinthians 15, 15 and 17. Their sins are not forgiven, 15, 17. And they're headed for eternal destruction, 1 Corinthians 15, 18. And we're to be pitied, Paul says, for believing a ridiculous lie, verse 19 of that same chapter. In verses 23 through 28 of chapter 15, Paul makes a critical point for the Corinthians to consider. There is indeed an interval between the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of believers, the so-called intermediate state. What happens to grandma who loved Jesus and dies? Where does she go? Well, Paul deals with that. We call it the intermediate state. 
Christ is said to be the first fruits of the resurrection of the body yet to come at the end of the age, chapter 15, 20, and 23. Believers will be raised on the last day when the curse of death is finally defeated and demonic powers are exposed and judged, and then Jesus hands the kingdom over to the Father. Paul's point is that our mortal bodies which die will be transformed into glorious resurrected bodies which cannot die when Jesus returns. Now, Paul gives us a number of additional reasons for believing in the resurrection of the body in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 29 through 34. The practice of baptizing for the dead, which we'll address when we get to 1 Corinthians 15, 29, makes no sense if there is no future resurrection. So, too, it would be nonsensical for Paul to face the suffering and death during his Gentile mission if there were no future resurrection. Why would Paul be so fearless in the face of death? Because he knows he's going to be raised with Christ. And then finally, in verses 35 through 58 of chapter 15, Paul speaks to objections about the possibility of a future resurrection. And apparently, some in Corinth thought such a thing was inconceivable and impossible. And Paul gives us a number of illustrations to show the plausibility of belief in the resurrection. The life that comes from a dead seed that sprouts up after the seed is planted indicates that God can produce a new physical body that's quite different from present human existence. He makes that point in chapter 15, verses 36 through 38. The diversities of bodies on earth and in heaven attest to the fact that God has the power to raise believers from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 39 through 41. And since bodily life is even now incredibly diverse, we should be willing to accept that God is able to give eternal life. And so the discontinuity between the present and the future body is made pretty clear in 1 Corinthians 15, 42-44. The natural body, the body of this age, it's perishable, it's dishonorable, it's weak, it's natural. I should know I'm getting to be close to 70, and I feel every one of those things. While the spiritual body of the future, of the age to come, is imperishable, and glorious, and powerful, and transformed. The word spiritual does not mean the body is non-physical like a ghost. Rather, his point is that the body is animated and empowered by the Holy Spirit, this glorified resurrected body. And so those who doubt the resurrection need to take into account both the continuity and the discontinuity between the present and the future body. First comes Adam, and then comes Christ. Paul's two Adam Christology. And from Adam, believers receive a natural and immortal body, while from Christ we receive a heavenly body which can live in the heavenly realms and in the presence of the Holy God. The flesh and blood bodies we now have cannot enter God's kingdom, 1 Corinthians 15.50. And when Christ returns, our bodies will be instantly changed. The dead will be raised and the living will be transformed. Verses 51-52 to of that chapter. The perishable and the mortal will give way to the imperishable and the immortal. Death will be vanished forever through the victory of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 55-57, in a passage where Paul virtually mocks death. As the resurrection comes at the end of the age, here too we see that eschatology is central for Paul. With the coming of Jesus, 
In his death, his resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost, the two ages have met. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. Christ's resurrection marks the great turning point in redemptive history. The cross and the empty tomb bring this present evil age to an end, while the giving of the Spirit is the sign of the dawn of the new creation and the age to come. Christians live in the time of the already and the not yet, this tension between the two, which we'll explain as we go along. 1 Corinthians 1.8 and 11.26 We now live in an age of decay and death. 1 Corinthians 15.49-53 And there's still the guarantee of a future parousia or return of our Lord. Paul makes that point a number of times here in Ephesians chapter 1, 11 through 13 where he speaks of a subsequent bodily resurrection. And just as he does in his second Thessalonian letter, Paul refers to the day of the Lord, which is clearly the last day of human history, when Jesus will appear when his glory is revealed. 1 Corinthians 1, 7-8 The day of the Lord refers to that day, Jesus' day, in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, because the previous verses there speak of Jesus being Lord, verses 3 and 4. And so the significance of this is clarified by considering the loud echoes from the Old Testament, where the day of the Lord refers to Yahweh's day of judgment and salvation. And there are a list of passages, I'll give you a couple of them, Isaiah 13, 6, Ezekiel 30, verse 3, Joel 1, 15, 2, 1, 11, 31, chapter 3, 14, Amos 5, 18 to 20, you get the point, this goes on and on, and ends at Malachi 3, verse 5. Remarkably, that day of the Lord is now also the day of Jesus Christ, which tells us that eschatology doesn't center around geopolitical events or the nation of Israel, but it centers around the person and work of Christ. When his work is completed, he returns. And so the connection of the day of the Lord tells us that Jesus is going to return on the last day, 1 Corinthians 4 or 5, and that on that day he will function as the end-time judge. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 4. That Aramaic phrase, Maranatha, which I love to use, which is translated, Come, Lord, is pretty notable in this context. It's used by Paul as a sort of benediction, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22. Paul almost certainly picks up the wording of the early Palestinian church by which they express their longing for our Lord's return. Maranatha, come, Lord. And so Jesus' role as judge is a divine prerogative, and it testifies to his equality with the Father and his own divine glory and splendor. Well, as we've seen up to this point, Paul's first Corinthian letter is a situational letter Yet it's packed with theological insight and teaching, especially when we see Paul's Trinitarian theology and his use of the Old Testament repeatedly to support his doctrinal points. This makes 1 Corinthians a remarkable letter and reminds us why we ought not neglect this very important Pauline epistle. Now, since there is so much ground to cover and since I've given so many biblical references, I've divided this episode into two halves so it would be easier for you to break the episode up into two parts if you wish. You can listen one part now, one part later, however you wish to do that, but I think it's good to break it up. 
So far, we've covered Paul's Trinitarian theology and his references to salvation of sinners and the resurrection. Now, in the second half, after a break, we'll address Paul's discussion of spiritual gifts and the church, and then we'll consider Paul's teaching on the Christian life. Show notes for this episode, in addition to all the past episodes on Galatians and Thessalonians, along with our series The Future, that can be found at the Riddle blog. That's kimriddlebarger.com, all one word, lowercase, kimriddlebarger.com. And you can find all of this under the Blessed Hope Podcast tab. Now, if you've not yet checked out the Riddle blog, I encourage you to do so. You'll find lots of essays, years of sermons at Christ Reformed Church, biblical and theological studies of all sorts and dimensions, expositions of the Reformed Confessions, as well as my musings on a whole bunch of topics, which I like to mix with a fair bit of humor of the dad joke sort. If you enjoy the Blessed Hope Podcast and you like what we're doing, well, please tell your friends and your church folk who might be interested into our deep dive into Paul's letters. Word of mouth really works as the best way to grow a podcast. The numbers of downloads attest to the fact that you all are telling others and people are finding the podcast and listening. I'm blown away by the sheer number of downloads that we've received, and thank you very, very much. It helps a great deal when you share on X, Twitter, and Facebook, the announcements about new episodes. So when I post something up, if you share that with others, that really helps let people know that the new episodes are available. And I do want to thank those of you who faithfully do so. I know who you are. I really appreciate it. And a hearty thanks. Now, as an aside, some of you have asked me why I don't do a YouTube version. Well, there are two reasons why that just is never going to happen. The first is, I'd have to clean my study. So whenever I do a podcast, I spend an hour cleaning up to get ready. And second of all, those of you who know me know I have a face for radio. So YouTube thing's not going to happen. But I'm really thankful that the Blessed Up podcast in its current form has done well and hope to continue that for some fair amount of time. So with that, we're back to part two of this episode, and we'll talk about spiritual gifts and the Christian life. The church, as the body of Christ, plays a major role in Paul's understanding of the person and work of Jesus, the work of the Holy Spirit in the present age, as well as informing his own personal understanding of the Gentile mission. The church is said to be the temple of God, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Paul stress upon the unity and love for our fellow Christians, proper ethical behavior in both marriage and in the church, as well as the reception of the sacraments are all discussed in the context of ecclesiology. Now, I've taught systematic theology for a long time through the years, and I know for a fact that the last chapters on ecclesiology are the least read chapters in Louis Burkhoff's systematic theology. But from what we know in 1 Corinthians, Paul's doctrine of the church is very, very important, and we neglect it to our peril. So for those to whom Paul's writing, simple though they may be, they are living stones of Christ's temple and members of Christ's body. And therefore, proper conduct in the church, unlike the pagans around them, is expected of those redeemed by Jesus and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Ecclesiology may not be our favorite subject, 
but it's very important for Paul. And again, I want to stress, we ought not neglect the understanding of the church. Spiritual gifts play a very important role in 1 Corinthians. As previously noted, Paul's discussion of spiritual gifts is conducted in light of the Lordship of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. Spiritual gifts are to be exercised under Christ's Lordship. That's a message the Corinthians really needed to hear because spiritual gifts are not to be seen as the expression of one's personality, nor are they intended to reveal the gifts and talents of the person to whom they're given. Rather, they reveal that those exercising them understand themselves to be servants of Christ. Now, a variety of gifts is listed in 1 Corinthians, especially chapter 12, 8 through 11, and then again in 20 through 30. And since spiritual gifts are also cataloged in other passages, Romans 12, 6 to 8 comes to mind, it's apparent that the list of gifts given by the Spirit in 1 Corinthians is not an exhaustive list. Despite the length of the discussion in chapters 12, 13, and 14, Paul does not give us a systematic treatise or a full explanation of the gifts of the Spirit. Rather, he seems to be more concerned with the abuse and misuse of these gifts. The nature and definition and use of the gifts will be discussed in detail when we come to those chapters in our exposition, because that's really best handled in context. So we'll wait and dig deeper then. Now, in light of the background previously discussed, it's evident from Paul's letter that some Corinthians saw themselves as more spiritual than others based on the spiritual gifts they exercised, especially if one had the gift of tongues. Paul makes the point that there's no basis for pride in possessing spiritual gifts. And even that discussion is framed in light of Paul's Trinitarian theology, because behind the variety of gifts is the same spirit, 1 Corinthians 12.4. And behind the various kinds of service is the same Lord, 1 Corinthians 12.5. And behind the different results and effects of the gifts of the Spirit is the same God, 1 Corinthians 12.6. And so instead of focusing upon the abilities and talents of the one exercising the gift, the Corinthians must understand that the Spirit distributes the gifts, working together with the Father and through the Son, for the benefit of the church, Christ's body, not the individuals who possess the gifts. Again, God is sovereign, and he assigns these gifts to members of Christ's church according to his will, not the believer's whim. Huge point he makes in 12.18. Whether someone is called to be an apostle, a, a prophet, a teacher, or so on, is ascribed by Paul to the will of God. 1 Corinthians 12.28 And therefore, any honor and praise which comes with someone exercising a particular gift comes from God's wisdom and rule. Again, chapter 12, 22 through 24. And that's why no one should be made to feel superior or inferior based upon the gifts given to them by God. That's chapter 12, 15 to 16. The variety of gifts distributed among the body reflects God's wisdom. The body of Christ is to be marked by both unity and diversity, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 20 which is why Paul compares the church to the human body, 1 Corinthians 12, 12-20, 24, and 27. Because a human body serves as a wonderful example of the unity and diversity of the church because there are many members, but only one body. And in that body, Jesus Christ is the head, 
verse 20 of chapter 12. And so Paul now reminds the Corinthians of the absurdity of the whole body seeing itself as but a part, an ear, or the whole body thinking of itself as a little part, the eye. 1 Corinthians 12:17. The unity and diversity of the body then reflects God's purpose in creating the church and then equipping its members for service to serve one another in love. Therefore, the purpose of gifts is the edification and building up and strengthening of the church, so that it can serve as God's embassy in the midst of a pagan land. The Corinthians should desire the greater gifts which edify the church as a whole, because they're not a matter of personal pride and self-importance. And given what Paul says in chapters 12-14, through 14, the greater gifts do not indicate that the one who possesses them is somehow spiritually superior. That is a sinful expression of pride and contrary to one of the fundamental purposes of the gifts as spelled out in chapters 12 through 14. An illustration of this is that the gift of prophecy is superior to tongues, not because those who prophesy are more spiritual, but because untranslated languages do not edify others since those who hear can't understand what's being said. It's chaos, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14. Paul strives to make it clear to the Corinthians that edification is the aim of believers gathering together and that such edification occurs where there is an understanding of the things of God. And that kind of edification takes place through the mind and the heart follows. And therefore, Paul gives a number of illustrations to make that very point. It does little good if somebody plays a harp or a flute so badly that no one understands what tune's being played, as he says in 14.7. And if a bugle intended to sound the alarm for war is poorly played, nobody's going to prepare for battle, verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 14. So too, tongue speaking without understanding is like talking to the air, just as one does not get any benefit from conversing with someone from a different culture if the language spoken is unintelligible, 1 Corinthians 14, 10-11. People are only edified if their minds are engaged, if they're understanding so that they can give an intelligent amen to what's been said, verses 13 through 19 of chapter 14. But that raises a question. Why should believers pursue particular gifts if gifts are assigned sovereignly by God? Well, perhaps Paul has the corporate community in mind, intending to say that the church as a whole, not individuals, should pursue the greater gifts. But it's probably the case that Paul also has in mind individuals in the church who ought indeed to pursue their greater gifts. And his discussion here, granted, is difficult, but Paul's point is that tongues without an interpretation does not encourage, it does not strengthen others. And unbelievers or inquirers will think that the tongue speakers are out of their minds. They'll not be built up, but they'll be driven away if they do not understand what is happening. So here again, Paul reminds his readers of an Old Testament text, Isaiah 28, where the foreign language of the Assyrians signified that the day of judgment had come. And Paul uses the Isaiah text analogously. His point is that untranslated languages will bring judgment and drive away unbelievers from the church. The Corinthians should desire the salvation of unbelievers, not their judgment. And that's why prophecy, preaching, 
is far better because unbelievers will hear and they'll understand and they then may repent and turn to the Lord when hearing the prophetic word. If one positive in using gifts is the edification of believers, then another value is order and peace. And so, assembling together for worship should be orderly, not chaotic. As Champa and Reisner point out, Paul's reference to the churches in 1 Corinthians all reinforce the fact that the Corinthians must not think of themselves as a local Christian community, free to construct its own identity through some eclectic mix of elements of Pauline and Corinthian origin. In 117, he, Paul, refers to the rule I lay down in all the churches. In 1116, he points out that the churches of God have no other practice than the one Paul has established in Corinth as well. And the experience and practice of the other churches ground Paul's distinctives for Corinth again in 1433 and 16.1. The Corinthians are told to follow the example of the churches of Galatia. These are foundational for the concept of the Catholicity of the church, which is to glorify God in every place. And they cite 1 Corinthians 1.2 and Malachi 1.11. So in Corinthians 14, 26-33, order is to be pursued because it enables the wider participation that one or two people won't dominate the entire assembly. One person who is prophesying should give way to another instead of droning on and on, as Paul implies in verses 31-32 of chapter 14. The need for order is evident in tongue-speaking and prophecy. Only two or three should speak in tongues when gathered, and only one person should speak at a time. Verse 27 of chapter 14. It's imperative that someone is present who is able to interpret the tongue, because an untranslated language is prohibited because it does not edify the congregation. So Paul's concern for order in the churches is also to be demonstrated in the limitations assigned by him. The entire time together must not consist of tongue speaking or prophesying. First Corinthians 14, 27-29. Two or three can speak in tongues and prophesy, but that activity must not go on endlessly. God is a God of order and clarity, and Paul makes this clear in his instructions in 1 Corinthians 14.40, but all things should be done decently and in good order. Well, that brings us to the fourth and final point of summation of Paul's doctrine in 1 Corinthians. And as you gather by now, this letter is packed. There is a lot here. Now, in many ways, 1 Corinthians is a letter of instruction in the Christian life to new Christians. All believers are called to live their lives in a manner fitting to their confession of faith. These new believers are called upon to live in unity with one another, and their moral character, or lack thereof as the case may be, that's a vital concern to Paul. Christian sexual ethics come to the forefront in 1 Corinthians. According to Paul in chapter 5, the Corinthian church was tolerating a man claiming to be a Christian, but who lived incestuously with his stepmother. Paul was horrified that the church was willing to tolerate such a thing. This concern was that the church's leniency in failing to remove the offender would have a scandalizing effect on the entire congregation, as he mentions in chapter 5 or 6, and impair the church's witness to the community. Paul calls upon the church to act decisively since Christ's church should not be characterized by such behavior. Verse 8. It's vital in a place like Corinth 
that Christians live in such a way as to attract outsiders and bring glory to God. So the command to glorify God with one's body as it pertains to sexual morality is also emphasized in 1 Corinthians 6, 12-20. Some of the Corinthians still embraced a Greek view that what we do or don't do with our bodies is inconsequential, since as material, the body is thought to be inferior to the soul. And that explains why certain among the Corinthians had doubts about a future resurrection of the body, chapter 15. If our bodies are destined to perish, and only our souls truly matter, then we're free to indulge our sexual desires in the same way we satisfy our desires for food and, and drink, according to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13. Paul emphasizes the significance of the body and the union of believers with the Lord in that chapter. The bodies of believers will be raised from the dead, just as the Lord Jesus was raised, and therefore our bodies have permanent significance. And since believers are united to Christ in a bond affected by the Holy Spirit and now belong to Him, it is inappropriate to engage in sexual relations with prostitutes or in extramarital affairs. Sexual sin is committed with the body, and thus there is a psychological sense in which it is particularly defiling and damaging because it's a sin against one's own person. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. Believers have been purchased with the blood of Christ, and it's to Him we belong. Chapter 6, verses 19 to 20. And furthermore, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, so that we're to honor God and glorify God with our bodies, because those bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, purchased with Christ's blood. And so the kind of life Christians should live is a very important matter in Paul's discussion of virgins in 1 Corinthians 7, 32-35. If one is married, then by all means one should consider how to please one's spouse. But there are advantages, Paul says, to being single, one of which is that a person is free to devote their time and energy full-time to pleasing the Lord without being tied down to hearth and home. Now, Paul does not despise the latter, but he commends the single life for the freedom it affords for a life consecrated to God. Four times, in 1 Corinthians 7, 17-24, Paul tells believers that they are to remain in the calling in which they were called. In affirming this, Paul doesn't mean that one should never get married if single, nor does it mean that one should refrain from becoming free if one's a slave. Paul strives then to correct the error that one's station life must be altered if they're to be effective as believers. Our lives are no longer our own. They've been bought with a price, verse 23 of chapter 7. We must not think we'll be more effective in our witness to others or impact our standing before God if our place in society changes when we become Christians. We don't stop doing secular things and just do Christian things. We do the things we were doing now with Christ as Lord. The Corinthians need to serve Jesus in whatever circumstances they find themselves. Here we would paraphrase Paul's doctrine as you can't unscramble eggs. You take people in the condition that you find them and move them to a better place. And I think that's an important topic we'll need to tackle when we get to chapter 7. Now to live as redeemed sinners becomes evident in Paul's discussion of lawsuits in 1 Corinthians 6, 1-8. In one sense, these legal issues are 
pretty trivial because they probably had to do with civic lawsuits dealing with matters of everyday life. Apparently, suing everybody was a rather common practice in, in Corinth, as we've seen. What annoys Paul wasn't the presence of conflict so much as the appeal to unbelievers to resolve disputes within the church, which is the body of Christ. Believers should pursue the way of love, and when necessary, that means allowing themselves to be defrauded and cheated if it comes to that. But many among the Corinthians were themselves doing the defrauding and the cheating, and such behavior is inconsistent with the new life granted to believers who are washed in baptism sanctified at conversion, and declared to be right before God, according to chapter 6, verse 11. We know the dissension and cheating common in Corinth contradict what it means to be the holy people of the Lord. We see the same kind of disunity and selfishness at the Lord's table of all places, 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 34 Apparently the rich, those who provided the food and the drink, were gorging themselves and drinking sumptuously and ignoring the needs of the poor. We brought the food, we're going to eat it first, is I think the context here. The breach in fellowship, the callous disregard for the needs of others while celebrating the Lord's Supper, which signifies self-giving love for others in light of Jesus offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins through the bread and the wine. Such a thing was completely inappropriate. The celebration of the Lord's Supper should not look like the sort of pagan feasting they had known previously. And so Paul exhorts the Corinthians, live out your profession of faith in Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Lord's Supper is certainly one place where the congregation needs to make some changes and fix things. The Corinthians are also exhorted to flee from sexual morality, 1 Corinthians 6.18, as well as to Flee from idolatry, chapter 10, verse 14. And here, too, we find loud echoes from the Old Testament. The Lord must be first in one's affections, and there is to be no toleration of worship of other gods reflected in the commandments in Exodus, chapter 20, verses 3 through 6. Those who are redeemed by Christ cannot serve him and idols at the same time. It is God or mammon, not both. The new way of life for believers is a life of love, which is modeled on the self-giving love of Christ on the cross. And so the famous love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13 is placed in the middle of Paul's discussion of spiritual gifts. I hate to break it to you, but it's not a passage about romantic love. I know I've read it myself, but requests and number of weddings, but it doesn't belong in that setting. Spirituality is not measured by ecstatic experiences or by external demonstrations of holiness. Rather, it reveals itself in a life of sacrificial love in which one gives themselves over to the service of others. The call to edify others using spiritual gifts is but another way of saying that we're to love one another. Similarly, at the outset of the discussion of food offered to idols, Paul exalts the supremacy of love. This is the category we're supposed to use when we talk about the things we eat and the things we don't eat. 1 Corinthians 8, 1-3. Those who are proud of their insight into idolatry and who neglect the needs of others reveal their callous self-regard by not caring about the lives of those who are weak or who were scandalized by those who were eating food offered to idols. And so 1 Corinthians 9 functions as an intermediary chapter in the discussion of what do we do with food sacrificed to idols just as chapter 13 serves as an intermediary chapter in the discussion of spiritual gifts. 
In chapter 9, Paul presents himself as an example of one who disregards his own right for pay for the sake of others, and particularly for their salvation. Paul conducted his ministry by the rule of love, seeking what was good for others instead of pursuing things for his own benefit. The Corinthians are to do the same. All of the moral lapses and divisive behavior recounted in this letter can be attributed to a lack of love for others. And this lack of unity reflects the self-absorption and even the narcissism present for true unity and harmony within the church is a fruit of love of neighbor. And promoting one faction above another, which Paul identifies as coming from the root of pride, we see this in chapter 1 and again in chapter 4, that violates the principle of love, which is supposed to animate our lives as Christians. Similarly, the treatment of the poor by the rich during the Lord's Supper reveals their own moral blindness and utter self-regard. Allowing incest in the church might seem to be a loving thing if one defines love as tolerance of all behaviors, like you'd find in any liberal progressive church today. Such a definition, however, stands in total opposition to the Christian ethic. Love must manifest itself in holiness, which even unbelievers recognized was not the case of a church tolerating incest, 1 Corinthians 5.1. Defrauding and cheating others in lawsuits is unloving. So, too, is using others for sexual pleasure in casual and non-committed relationships contrary to Love, 1 Corinthians 6, 12-20, because love seeks the good of others. And so a Christian's body, again, is the instrument to bring glory to God, not to indulge our sinful passions. And that leads to one of the places that Paul must address, and that's the issue of food sacrifice to idols. It's one of the most difficult and contested matters in how we read and understand 1 Corinthians. Many tell us that Paul allows believers to eat food offered to idols, even in a temple setting, provided that the weak are not scandalized and the setting is social rather than religious. Others contend that one must never eat food in the idol's temple because any attempt to distinguish between social and religious occasions in the temple just isn't going to work, because the argument runs that every meal eaten in a pagan temple was religious in nature, even if the occasion was something like a birthday party. Gordon Fee, famous commentator on 1 Corinthians, contends that believers commit idolatry if they partake of any food in the temple of an idol. Any food. Now, on the other hand, there are a number of interpreters who think believers have a right to partake knowingly of food sacrificed to idols if the food is purchased from a city market. Remember, there is no refrigeration, so once an animal was sacrificed, the remains, what the priests couldn't eat, the remains were sold off. Why they went to a butcher, a, a, a meat market of some sort, no refrigeration, has got to be sold right away, or it was given to the poor. So believers, according to 1 Corinthians 8 verse 9, must take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. That's the big issue here. How do the strong not stumble the weak? Believers must refrain on this view However, if weak Christians or unbelievers learn that the food being eaten was at one time offered to idols, one may knowingly eat food offered to idols sold in the marketplace, according to this view, as long as the weak don't know about it and therefore are not stumbled by it. Others hold to the view that 
Paul's stance on idols is that believers should never knowingly eat any food sacrificed to an idol. And that's based on the view that eating food sacrificed to idols is repeatedly prohibited in the New Testament. Acts 15.29, 21.25, and again it appears in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 14, and verse 20. The early church was of one voice in affirming that Christians should not eat food sacrificed to idols. What believers do not have to do, however, is try to discern whether the food was actually offered to idols. 1 Corinthians 10, 27-30 Christians are free to eat all food without inquiring about whether or not it was offered, but if they're told it was offered to idols, then they should refrain from eating. So it ought to be clear that there are going to be many interpretive difficulties when we get there about what do you do with meat and food sacrificed to idols. Are we permitted or are we forbidden from eating? And we'll talk about that and the circumstances that surround that when we get there. So what Paul says about food sacrificed to idols in Corinthians should never be conflated with his advice about foods in Romans 14, 1 through 15, 6. The two passages appear to have some similarities, but there are some real differences. In Romans, Paul permits eating of foods that were unclean by virtue of Old Testament food laws. So we know that from a number of passages in Romans 14 and on into chapter 15. But in 1 Corinthians 8-10, through 10, Paul's talking about food offered to idols. It's a different set of circumstances. He never uses the term sacrifice to idols in Romans. So the situations are different and we have to keep them distinct. Believers are no longer under the Mosaic Covenant and its prescriptions. Mmm, bacon. Hence, the freedom to eat unclean foods as Paul teaches in Romans. But on the other hand, we cannot commit idolatry, and Paul at some level believes that eating food sacrificed to idols is idolatry, and we'll have to deal with that. Others point out that Paul speaks of the right of the Corinthians to eat in the temple of idols, adding to this his insistence that idols are non-existent and there's nothing objectively wrong with idol food because there's really no reality behind the idols, as the points made in 1 Corinthians 8, 4-6. Paul can speak as he does about their right to eat in 1 Corinthians 8, 9 because they were familiar with his teaching that eating food offered to idols in pagan temples was forbidden. In other words, the Corinthians drew conclusions contrary to Paul, and extended their freedom in illegitimate ways, which was causing weaker brothers and sisters to stumble. And so on that view, the right then is one claimed by the Corinthians, but it wasn't a right approved by Paul, and he's writing in part to fix that. So in chapter 8, Paul does not rebuke those who are arguing for freedom. He refers to the centrality of love, 1 Corinthians 8, 1-3. He appeals to the oneness of God and the Lordship of Christ, and then makes the implications for idols and food offered to idols, and the need then to be concerned about the weak. What does eating this stuff do to the weak? That's his primary concern. And he's concerned then about the adverse effect liberty has on those of weak conscience. And we'll talk to that matter when we get there. It's a really important topic in the church because there are lots of questions that come up all the time about what we can and cannot do and how it impacts the weaker brother especially with matters like alcohol consumption. So we'll, we'll talk about that. In chapter 9, Paul speaks of himself as an example. 
And yet at the conclusion of that chapter, verses 24 to 27, he begins to introduce the larger danger facing those who partake of food sacrificed to idols. The danger is apostasy. The many examples from the history of Israel, and spelled out in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 11, really do reinforce the point that those who think they can stand firm while committing idolatry, whether wittingly or unwillingly, are on the verge of falling, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. So Paul's point here is that all forms of idolatry are to be rejected. And in our application, that's going to extend beyond food sacrificed idols to the kinds of things we participate in culturally. So those who give way to idolatry in any way, shape, or form, who subsequently fall, won't receive the heavenly inheritance, and that is a serious and eternal consequence. So as we wrap up then, in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 19 to 22, Paul clarifies that even though idols and idol food are nothing in reality, there are demons behind the idolatry. And those who partake of food sacrificed to idols are in some sense participating with demonic powers and guilty of idolatry. Paul has no objection to eating food for sale in the marketplace if its nature is unknown. There's no reality to the idolatry, 1 Corinthians 10, 23-11-1. But if it is disclosed that this is food that had been sacrificed to idols, then Christians are to refrain from eating it. So, again, we'll have that discussion when we get there. Well, how do we summarize the central themes then as we conclude our lengthy time in this letter? Paul's Corinthian letter was written to address divisions beginning within the Corinthian congregation. So he's gotten these reports that bad things were going on and things are getting worse. The thesis statement in 1 Corinthians 1.10 is, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. So the two primary vices with which Paul must deal are those typical of Greco-Roman paganism, sexual morality and idolatry, both of which amount to a renunciation of the matters addressed in the commandments God gave to Israel. Paul must show that God's grace revealed in Christ's death and resurrection and the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit brings about an entirely different set of values and morality to those in Christ's church. The divisions must cease, and Paul's apostolic authority to address such matters must be accepted. And Christ's church should reflect the new creation which Jesus has brought about through his person and work. Again, Siampa and Rossner offer us a big-picture, redemptive historical summary of 1 Corinthians' place in the canon. This is a flyover. Important to see the big picture after focusing for so much on the details. And they write, Paul's attempt to tell the church of God in Corinth that they are part of the fulfillment of the Old Testament expectation of worldwide worship of the God of Israel and as God's eschatological temple, they must act in a manner appropriate to their pure and holy status by becoming unified shunning pagan vices, and glorifying God in the obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So Paul's letter was written to address specific problems in Corinth, 
but we shouldn't be surprised that Paul's thought world is Christ's fulfillment of the Old Testament prophetic expectation for the people of God. We must not lose sight of Paul's coherent doctrine in the many contingent situations we find in 1 Corinthians. So as we look at the trees, we've got to keep the forest in mind. The forest is the Old Testament and Christ's revelation of the gospel to Paul. The trees, they're the issues in Corinth. Well, as we've seen, 1 Corinthians is a jam-packed epistle, and there is so much rich theology here that it's no wonder that Reformed theologians have appealed to it so frequently in support of the great doctrines that characterize our tradition. I might be a retired seminary professor and a pastor, but I'm still giving you a homework assignment. Read the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians and then listen to 1 Corinthians 1-6 through 6 read aloud at least once. The whole point of the Blessed Hope podcast is to give you a better knowledge of these epistles so that you know what is in them and learn from them. But you can't really learn them unless you make them your own. So take up and read chapters 1-6, through 6, which will prepare you for our next episode when we'll begin our verse-by-verse exposition of this letter from the beginning, and we'll start at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1. Until next time, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus.